Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, everyone. Kickstarter back at L100 asked what was life like for Jews in the Byzantine Empire. And fellow back at HW asked more detailed questions about the restrictions that Jewish people lived under, the organization of each community, and different sects. And then we got end-of-the-century questions from AL and AK, adding more queries on the same subject. So today we talk entirely about the Jewish communities of Byzantium. There were, of course, many Jews living throughout the Roman world long before Constantinople was founded. The communities who lived in the eastern Mediterranean were well integrated into the empire's network of cities, and though undoubtedly some Jews were farmers or worked in the agricultural sector, Jewish Romans tended to be uh, city dwellers. They were largely an urban group. Because of their status as outsiders, it was easier to maintain a community by living in proximity to one another. And it was easier to keep in touch with other Jewish centers if you lived in a town or a city, preferably on a trade route. The people living in these communities spoke Greek. They would also speak and read Hebrew, at least some of them, uh, those who could read. Uh, but Greek was the common tongue of the Eastern Roman Empire, and it was natural for everyone to be fluent and for the educated to be able to read it. The coming of Christianity obviously saw many an assault on the Jewish position, and in many ways they were worse off than they had been under pagan rule. However, for several reasons, the triumph of Christianity also provided something of a shelter for the Jews within the Roman world. You see, Christian polemicists needed the Jews in order to contrast them with Christians, just as military victory demonstrated God's approval for a particular emperor, so the dominance of Christianity clearly showed that the Christians were right and the Jews were wrong. This sense of moral superiority is a common theme across the millennium of Byzantine literature. The Jews were the perfect before picture in the advert for the Christian religion. You can stay part of this small, depressing sect, stuck in its backwardness, or you can join the winning side, the good guys, 
those bathed in the light of truth. Now that might not sound like much of a win for the Jews, but think about what happened to unorthodox Christians. The Arians, the Nestorians, the Paulicians, the Monophysites, all had been harassed or persecuted out of the empire. The pagans too were an unacceptable sight in Byzantium. The Jews, on the other hand, they were an accepted exception. Their status was enshrined in law. Christians they may be, but the Romans respected the rule of law. In 212 AD, every Jewish man in the empire had become a Roman citizen, along with everyone else. And even as the law was changed to reflect the preeminence of the followers of Jesus, this status was never revoked. When Justinian undertook his huge project to codify Roman law, he made sure that the rules regarding the Jews were preserved, though naturally he tinkered with them to bring them up to date. On the one hand, these laws make it explicit that a Jewish person is a second-class citizen. They were not allowed to hold any civil or military office, they were not allowed to make new converts, they couldn't build new synagogues, and most importantly, they could not own Christian slaves. In a society where slaves were key to profit margins, this was quite a punitive restriction on the Jewish community's ability to compete nor were they allowed to convert the slaves that they did acquire. In theory, the death penalty could be meted out if a Jew was found to have circumcised one of their slaves. However, the law also offered protection. Synagogues were recognized places of worship that could not be desecrated or confiscated. Jewish law courts were to be respected, and decisions passed there had the force of imperial law. Jews were also not to be harassed for being Jewish. It was illegal to interfere with their rights to observe the Sabbath and the major festivals of Judaism. And being citizens, there were no restrictions on the movement of Jewish people, on them owning land or buying a house or conducting trade, which in practice meant there was nothing to stop them bribing officials to bypass some of these regulations, which we know happened because new synagogues were built over the centuries. Though there are a few exceptions in specific places at specific times, in general, Byzantine Jews were not asked to wear particular clothes, work in specific professions, or pay a head tax. Their situation was usually much better than their co-religionists in Western Europe. But, as historian Andrew Scharf puts it, two opposing forces acted upon Byzantine Jewry, the opportunities of a comparatively open society and the inherent threat of a theologically oriented ruling institution. The situation was not static. The vicissitudes through which the empire passed often determined which force was in the ascendant. This has come up occasionally in the narrative. At times of great strain, the empire turned toward purification. Heraclius, various iconoclasts, Basil I and Romanus Le Capinos all announced their intention to convert Byzantium's Jews. 
by making Romania an entirely orthodox place, perhaps God's favour could be won. But it's very hard to know how far any of these schemes went. Often imperial edicts began to collapse as soon as they left the capital. Provincial officials had a hard enough time collecting tax. It was asking too much to expect them to carry out active persecutions. Uh, Though we know some persecution did go on and many Jews were put under pressure to convert and some did leave, migrating to the caliphate or to the realm of the Khazars. But the little evidence we have about Jewish communities before 1025 suggests a great deal of continuity in their location. It seems that the waves of persecution did not have a huge amount of success, and the Byzantines clearly recognized that forcing conversion on the Jews was a damaging waste of time. At the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, the Church acknowledged that Jews should not be put under pressure to convert, and the baptism of a Jewish person should be accompanied by proper checks on whether coercion was involved. Government policy towards the Jews resumed its tolerant stance with the reign of Constantine Porfiroyenitos, and that was maintained up to where we are in 1025. In fact, Jewish migration into the empire was somewhat encouraged. After all, if Armenians and Monophysites were welcome at Tarsus and Melitene, why not Jews as well? Though life in the caliphate was generally even easier for Jews, clearly some saw a better life in Byzantium, and the expanding empire offered financial opportunities for enterprising families. The persecutions of the mad caliph al-Hakim did not help either, sending many Jewish refugees into Byzantium's arms. In most cities of the empire, the Jewish community centred itself in a particular part of town for obvious reasons, though it was only in the major cities, like Constantinople and Thessalonica, that the authorities insisted on creating a specific Jewish quarter. At the capital, the Jews lived in the Chalcoprater, the copper workers' district, not far from the Hagia Sophia, for many centuries. But after riots in the 1040s, uh, shortly after we resume our narrative, we'll see the authorities encourage the Jews to move across the Golden Horn to Sikai, or Pera, as it was often called from then on. Here, the Jewish community would remain for the next couple of centuries. Things were always more uptight and organised at the capital. In most cities, the Jews lived side by side with Christians, and one example of how integrated they were comes from reports that they were involved in many of the city riots across the centuries. Far from detaching themselves from the concerns of Christians, Jews were involved in many civil disruptions, standing side by side with their neighbours in protesting government policy. Byzantine Jewish communities were usually involved in mercantile activity, in part because this allowed them to maintain contact with other Jewish groups across the Mediterranean, and in some cases this allowed them preferential access to goods coming from their brethren in the Caliphate. Connections like these demonstrated their value to the Byzantines who lived alongside them. It also helped that Roman elites generally spurned trade, leaving a gap in the market 
which the Jews could fill. This connection to trade naturally led to Jewish businessmen investing in the glass, pottery, textile, and money trades. By 1025, the Jewish communities of Greece were heavily involved in the silk industry. And in the Life of St. Nikon, a hagiographic text from Sparta, we see an interesting example of the type of relations this could lead to. In the story, the town is suffering from an epidemic, and the saint tells the city's leaders to expel the Jews in order to avert God's wrath. But many in the town refuse. Their Jewish silk workers were too valuable to the local economy. We don't know whether this story was based on a real incident, but it clearly reflects the author's experience. The major centres of Jewish learning for much of this period were in the Caliphate, Egypt, Palestine, Baghdad. And by maintaining contact with this wider Jewish world, the Byzantine communities ended up joining a major cultural shift. Back in earlier Roman times, major Jewish scholars like Philo and Josephus had written works in Greek, in part assuming that fellow Jews would read Greek as a matter of course. Over time, though, and particularly with the arrival of the Caliphate, Jewish communities began to be more divided linguistically, you know, partic particularly here between Greek and Arabic speakers. In both communities, works were then produced which reflected the linguistic influence of their parent culture. It was easier, therefore, to maintain a strong connection across civilizations by writing only in Hebrew. This was a slow evolution over time, and the work produced by Jewish scholars in Byzantium still shows sign of Greek influence. But when Byzantium fell, their works were not rendered obsolete by the collapse in the influence of the Greek language. Interestingly, the major centre of Jewish learning in Romania was not Constantinople or Thessaloniki, but Italy. Works on the Talmud, hagiography, poetry, and other subjects come to us from Oria, Bari, Otranto. At first glance, this might make you think that perhaps the Christian authorities suppressed Jewish work, and that in distant Italy the Jews were freer to publish the fruits of their labours. But by contrast, Andrew Schaff suggests it was the slightly cosier relationship of Jews to the empire in Greece and Anatolia that stunted efforts to produce literary works. It was closer to Constantinople that Greek had a stronger influence on Jewish writing. Whereas in Italy, where for much of the time Proto-Italian was the common tongue, the Jewish community maintained a much stronger commitment to Hebrew, and therefore produced works in that language rather than relying on Greek. The Italian Jews also saw a role for themselves as compilers and translators for their brethren further north, who were more isolated from the works being produced in the east. The less integrated Jews of Italy thus maintained stricter orthodoxy and valued their connections to the wider Jewish world a little more, perhaps, than other Byzantine Jews. That's the theory, anyway. It finds support from the writing of Isaiah ben Mali, who lived near Bari around 1200. 
He complained in his writings that Byzantine Jewish communities were deficient in the correct use of various uh, things, including ritual baths and marriage contracts and other misdemeanors suggestive of their isolation from the correcting currents of the wider diaspora. We have more sources on the empire's Jewish communities after 1025 than we do before. This means we know more about the groups living in the west than the east, um, you know, because of the Turkish invasions. So in addition to the Italian towns, uh, we know of Jewish communities uh, all across Greece, uh, Thessaloniki, Sparta, Thebes, Castoria, Corinth, Aphelon, now Pactus, and across the islands at Chios, Samos, Rhodes, and Cyprus. And we know there were communities at Atalea and Amorium, but further inland in Anatolia is more of a mystery. And we know that some of the Turkish, uh, well, some of the Jewish families who lived in those areas headed for Constantinople when the Turks invaded. The coming of the Crusades uh, will also not be good news for many uh, Byzantine Jews. The, the Roman authorities will react to the harsher practices of the Western Europeans by tightening some restrictions on their own Jewish communities. Um, but relations will not change that significantly. We know that after the sack of Constantinople in 1204, several prominent groups of Jews follow the Byzantines into exile rather than stay under Latin rule. Let's get to some of your specific questions. One was whether Byzantine Jews were a centralized community or if each group ran their own affairs. The answer seems to be that they were practically independent, though obviously communicated and interacted with one another regularly. Each Jewish community would require its own leadership, ideally under a trusted rabbi, but often leading families monopolized power. The rabbi would be both chief judge and spokesman for his people. He would then appoint administrators who would help carry out all the social, religious and legal functions of the group, teaching children, caring for the sick and orphaned, providing ritual slaughterers, marriage ceremonies, legal advice, and eventually burial in a Jewish graveyard. At Thessalonica and Constantinople, the choice of rabbi had to be approved of by the imperial authorities. Respected rabbis further afield might be sought out by individual communities for guidance, but as far as I know, no central leadership was established over the whole of Byzantine Jewry. Another question was whether the Jewish communities developed a separate cultural identity, as the Ashkenazic Jews of Europe did. Again, as best I can tell, the answer is no. Byzantine Jewish groups remained orthodox, that is, following the rabbinic mainstream, uh, again aided by the reversion to Hebrew. However, there are two other groups of Jews recognizable in Byzantium. One were the Karites, if I'm saying that right. This was a sect which argued that only the Tanakh, the Old Testament, was a source of authority for Jewish religious life. They rejected the oral tradition of rabbis whose works were written down in the Midrash, or Talmud. This was a very serious claim that caused great enmity between the two communities. 
As Jewish families migrated into the empire during the Macedonian era, Karaites came to settle alongside their rabbinic brethren. This led to nasty clashes between the two, and we know that by the 12th century, the two communities lived side by side at Constantinople with a fence separating them. Another sect we know of are the Meshwi, who migrated to Cyprus. We know much less about them, but they were criticised by the Orthodox and the Karaites. We know they disputed the traditional Jewish calendar and eventually observed the Sabbath on a Sunday, possibly influenced by their move to a Christian land. At least that's what their critics claimed. Another question was about Christian attitudes to Jewish polygamy, but uh, I don't have time for that today. Topics of a sexual nature will have to wait for a future Byzantine story. Uh, following on from the Women in the Roman World series uh, that I produced earlier this year. That's it for today, and almost for the end of the century. Next time, we will set things up for the narrative to come. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.